Welcome to Getting Curious. I am Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. And today's episode is so good. We are joined by Marsha Allen, where I ask her, how important is groundwater? Everyone. You may remember in our first season of Getting Curious for Netflix, we filmed an episode about skyscrapers. It was then that I became obsessed with what was going on like under New York City, like the bedrocks, the waterways. So today, at long last, we're going deep on everything just below the street level. So welcome to the show, Dr. Marsha K. Allen, who is an assistant professor of earth science at Mount Holyoke College. She specializes in the field of hydrogeology, how cool, right? And specifically fractured rock aquifers, and she conducts her work on the island of Tobago. Welcome, Dr. Marsha K. Allen. How are you? Oh, my God. I'm so excited to be on your show, Jonathan. Ah! Y'all, I really <laughs> wish that this was an episode of the TV show, though, speaking of, because the glasses that Marsha is rocking today, <laughs> so chic. It's giving 50s on 2022. Yes. And the texture on your beautiful hair with these white headphones, you guys, we typically don't post like shots from the podcast, but we may need to take a screenshot today because the look <laughs> is looking at serving. You look amazing. Oh, uh, thank you. And also, I know that beauty pageants can be controversial. I get it. However, <laughs> 1998, Miss Universe. She is from Trinidad and Tobago. I will never forget watching oh that year of Miss Universe. It was the yeah. year of the Nagano Olympics. Michelle Kwan, honey, she had just won <laughs> silver. This was a big year for us. And yes. Miss Trinidad and Tobago was the most stunning Fierce ass Miss fucking universe. Yeah, she literally took my breath away. My mom and I used to make little like pre scorecards. Like we were really into <laughs> it. And the second I saw her, I was like, "This is a wrap because she's gonna win." And she did. <laughs> Wendy Marcel Fitz William. Wendy, Wendy is life, and I just love her elegance, her grace, and she's actually brilliant. She's a lawyer. She did so much for as me as a young black woman growing up at that time. Oh my goodness. Uh, she was so radiant and I just wanted a piece of that. Oh my God. Okay, but we're going to focus. Like, I'm sorry I freaked out. I just, I had to get out of my system and now I'm so ready to talk about the, like, Earth. So let's start with the inside out. Like, what's the structure of Earth? Like, what are the basic layers? Let's talk about our solar system first. Imagine this huge cloud of plasma and dust and it starts to swirl, collapse because of gravity. And then the sun, in the center, the densest, the sun ignited. That's how we got our sun. Then it got so hot, it started melting all of the dust particles and other things that were in that cloud. And the first rocks form in our solar system. These rocks form at extremely high temperatures and high pressures, and they are called calcium aluminum inclusions. Fast forward, time passes. These rocks Crete on other rocks, you know, big interactions become larger in size. And then we have planets and so forth. Earth now, over time, it cooled. And because of density and gravity, the center of the Earth is core, dense material like metals, heavy metals. The mantle is in between the surface layer and the core. The lightest material is actually on the surface of the Earth, the crust. Think about the Earth as a ball of chocolate cake. The more you go towards the center, the richer it is in chocolate. <laughs> Ooh, I'm obsessed with that analogy. Oh my God, it's giving me Matilda. It's giving me Bruce Bogtrotter. It's giving me <laughs> fucking gorgeous cake. So we got our core. We got yeah. our mantle, which is like the Dr. Evil liquid hot magma. Yeah. And then we got the crust. Yes. The core is super hot too, but the mantle, it's pliable. It's like semi- solid semi-liquid and that's why we can have the plates on top move on top of them oh yes i love that there's so much pressure in there you know the temperature as we increase towards the center it's gonna get hotter the layer that you study is the crust the crust yeah so do we walk on the crust yeah you were walking on the crust so it's just right the fuck there like that top layer is just the crust like, we are on it. Like, unless you're in Manhattan and, you know, you have buildings, you have subways, but beneath that, it's solid rock and, yeah, it's it's Earth. So, as a hydrogeologist, you're really giving, like, rock, paper, scissors trio, but of groundwater, soil, and rocks, 
Like there's the groundwater, there's the soil, and there's the rocks. Is there other stuff? So the first thing you should know is that any medium underground that can store or transmit groundwater is called an aquifer. Oh. So hydrogeology is what's happening underground with different types of aquifer systems. And so you can have a big deposit of sand that can hold water. You can have gravel. But then we have these very, very complicated ones that are in solid rocks. So for example, picture a huge mountain of granite. And this granite has huge fractures and it has really good potable drinking water in it. Mm. We call them fractured rock aquifers. So they are basically an untapped source of drinking water. And we are trying to answer all of the unknown questions about how they function, especially now with climate change happening. Uh, Because climate change, it just affects everything. And it's a lot of chemistry. So I use chemistry to figure out how old groundwater is, what direction it's flowing underground because we can't see in these fractured rock aquifers. I also try to figure out when we're pumping, how, how connected is that aquifer to other areas of location? Does it go beyond the regular catchment size or is something else happening underground that it's sourcing water from far away through these fractures? And then finally, I take all of that data from those chemical analyses. I use data from climate scientists, like climate precipitation projections, and I input it in three-dimensional models to predict change in recharge or, or storage in the aquifer system. Okay. Obsessed. So basically, you're taking like data from other scientists and then you take that from what you know about your background in geology and you're fusing that with like groundwater, soil and like other like materials that can transmit water because really anything that can transmit water underground is considered an aquifer. Yes, yes. Any medium that can store transfer water. Okay, so how do we get our water now? It's all dependent on where you are in the world. So, for example, Tobago, it's a very tiny island. It doesn't have surface reservoirs, lakes, and so forth. So it's predominantly using groundwater uh, to provide for all of the residents and businesses. This is government control. And they do all the repairs, maintenance, the pumping schedule, and so forth. So some people in America, I know for a fact, they have their own well in their backyards. Yeah. Because there's no, like, local situation where they can actually, you know, get water from the town or so forth. So they have their own personal wells. So it's all dependent uh, on where you live and what's, what's available. If you were to, like, do a cross-section of, like, Manhattan or, like, a place with a subway, there's, like, the ground that we walk on. And then, like, where is the groundwater in relationship to, like, subways? Is it below us? Is it all around us? Is it above us? Like, what's a cross-section of a goddamn city with a fucking subway? I lived in New York City for a long time. I actually go often. So, as far as I know, New York gets its water from the Catskill upstate. Very pure water. New York has good water drinking Yeah, good-ass water. water. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure the water is coming through pipes. So the pipes are just like underground? Yes, and they come to your building. <sighs> Don't look so disappointed. Do you want to have a well? <laughs> on that episode of Getting Curious on Skyscrapers, I got to see like these like cool places that like not everybody like gets to walk to like down there. And there's like all these different pipes, but I guess I just assume some of those are electric, but some of those are carrying water. There are many pipes on the ground, some taking sewage, some taking water, some have electrical wires. I think this might be a whole new episode. Holy shit. Okay, yeah. <laughs> because I want to know. So when it comes to groundwater supply mm-hmm. in a place like Tobago, where do we find groundwater most often or does it really just vary? So first thing you need to know is as precipitation falls from the sky and it hits our land surface, once it can penetrate some of it is going to penetrate into the soil, then into the aquifer. Some of that precipitation is going to run off on the surface of the earth, following the gradient of the hill or the land. So it's going to go from high to low because of gravity. And it may flow into rivers and so forth. And then we also have water leaving through evaporation and evapotranspiration from plants. 
Oh. Any particular land mass, except for desert, some places just have minimal water. But let's just take New England, for example. The water table is the level of the water underground from where we stand. It's normally a couple of feet underground. Okay, fuck me. I'm so sorry. I'm obsessed. Water table. Everywhere has a water table, except for like deserts or just like if there's just like not very much groundwater, it might be like super, super deep or just like almost yes, non-existent. Yes, yes. So it's really based on what's happening on the ground with the geology, what's happening with the climate. And this is why you have to study every single region with water issues or who trying to make water plans to see what's happening and they have to plan based on what situation you're presented with. Does that make sense? Yes. So basically, like, the water falls and then it either, like, flows to the ocean or it flows to, like, a river or a lake if it's, like, downhill from that. Some of it absorbs, like, into the plants and the soil. But then it's, like, whatever is left over and does not flow into, like, a river or a lake and doesn't get absorbed by soil, that's, like, the water table. And that's kind of always, like, just a few feet typically below the ground. And then, so does that mean that, like, seasonality would affect it? Because, like, especially, like, a New England place, like, when, like, the snow is melting, like, in springtime, like, does it kind of raise? Yes, yes, you get it. That's, That's it right there. Now, the funny thing is, that's New England, but in Tobago... Because it's all fractured rock aquifers, my advisor, Dr. David Bout, when he started my research, he found that the island is losing over 60% of its fresh water through these Mm. fractures underground, and it's going straight into the ocean underground. And it was verified by fishermen who said out in the ocean, there's pods of like fresh water, and they know that because of the type of you know fish and so forth living in it. This is why it's so important to do local studies Based on what's happening, you can figure out what the issue is and how to adapt our methods to rectify it. So losing 60% of potable water is a lot of water to to lose, especially in a drought. Okay, you also just said a word for the second time that I was like obsessed the first time, but I was trying to act like fierce, like I know stuff, but potable water? Potable water just means drinking water. We can drink it. Okay, I'm obsessed. Okay, and how does seasonal changes affect groundwater in Tobago? So both Trinidad and Tobago um, have a tropical climate. So the first like six months out of the year is super dry and then the other half is super wet. And the rainy season is really, really important because during that period of time is when we get our recharge, which is supposed to like last us through the entire year. I think what we haven't really laid bare yet is that, like, there's, like, a water shortage, like, currently, or, like, we see one in the future looming for Tobago? Well, we had the most recent really bad drought was called the Pan-Caribbean drought, and it affected all of the islands, even certain parts of South America. When you see you have a, a drought that affects the daily lives of people, children not being able to go to school or farmers not having enough water... We should be concerned uh, because we need to figure out why is it happening? How can we fix it? And the last drought we had was pretty serious. Based on climate change projections, the regions that are getting drier now are projected to be much drier in the future. And the other regions in the world where we project that's going to get wetter, they're going to have a lot more rain, more flooding and so forth. So... That's the thing about climate change. It's just not all about drying. There's also wetting happening too. So we'll have these extreme floods and so forth. So that's why I'm worried. We need to move faster on understanding our um, aquifer systems and know how to budget and use it sustainably and also use it as a mechanism to plan for the future. And especially when you think about like, just like what you just said, like livelihoods, farming, schools, like you can kind of figure out like how much water someone would need through like years of observation. So this is really necessary to figure out like how people can move forward in the presence of drought or like the opposite of like drought, which is like, you know, too much water. So it's important to figure out like how this works. So then like, does that ocean in Tobago need 
like that water? Like, because if you try to harvest that 60%, could that fuck up like the fresh fish that like go there? Or is that part of the controversy? Like, do some people want to figure out like how to harvest that? But then other people are like, no, you can't like mess up what it's doing down there or whatever. But but that's the purpose of groundwater modeling. If it is we have all of these measurements and chemistry results, we can model systems so that we can take water sustainably without causing harm. And that's that's why my research is so important. How to use it sustainably? How can we all benefit from it and not mess the earth up more? <laughs> we need water every day. And we use water so much. I, I don't think we consciously realize how much potable water we waste. I feel in the future, we're going to have to do a lot more recycling of our used water and just save the potable water for drinking. And that's the direction I think we're going in if this continual drying and droughts continue to happen with such intensities. So like sinkholes, what the fuck? Is that just like there's so much rain? It's like the opposite of drying out. Like there's so much rain or something and like the groundwater table gets so high that everything's just kind of like getting a little soggy and then it collapses? Or is that totally not what it is? Now we're going to go into some geology, Jonathan. Yay. Okay. So you see a lot of sinkholes. Florida. Yeah. So Florida, certain parts of Florida has um, underground cast system, which means limestone rocks. The thing about limestone, you know, it, it can dissolve in water. And mm. even as you have a ton of water underground washing through this deposit, it's going to be hollow after some point in time. And that hollow hole beneath your house will cause instability. And at some point in time, things disappear in that hole. Mm. Scary. It's important for you to know where you're building your house, what type of rocks you're on. You know, buying a home is a very big investment, but people don't realize you even need to check the geology. Shit, fuck. <laughs> oh my God, I just moved. How do I find that out? My house is in Texas. Oh my God. Okay. Um, I'm just texting my husband really fast. Must check, <laughs> must check geology, texting. One more thing. Also check to see the flooding history. There are maps on there that you can find. Oh, fuck. Shit. Oh, my God. So, you guys, do that before you sign the dotted line. You know what I'm saying? Like, do that beforehand, you guys. That's a really good advice, Marcia. It's, like, really, really good advice. So, you also mentioned something earlier that's, like, really fascinating, and I guess I just didn't realize. You said that you can, like, date water. So, like, water has an age? Okay. So, yes. Technically. We call it the apparent age of groundwater. And what it is, is when you take a sample from a well... That sample is actually a mixture of multiple precipitation events dripping in through the rocks over time. We use something called environmental tracers. I particularly use two. One is called sulfur hexafluoride. It's an inert gas. They use it for making metal products, and that's how it gets into the atmosphere. Now, sulfur hexafluoride has been in the atmosphere since the 1950s. And a few organizations actually measure the sulfur hexafluoride in the atmosphere. So we know how much it is in the atmosphere each year. Okay, wait. Why has it only been since the 50s? Like, was that the result of some scary, like, fossil fuel burning or some, like, 1950s fucked up fuckery? I think they just decided to check it. But what happened in the 1950s oh. was nuclear testing. <laughs> so I think you're talking about that. Oh. Yes, I use that too. That's called tritium. <laughs> so you use like the sulfur hexafluoride. And it's not necessarily that it started in the 50s. It's just when we started testing for it. So maybe it did exist beforehand. Yeah. Yes. So yes, it, it's actually very tiny amounts of sulfur hexafluoride is naturally occurring in the atmosphere from the weathering of the mineral fluoride. So it can mm. happen naturally in very minute amounts, but the majority is from industrial processes. Okay, so it is like mostly a man-made thing. Yeah, yeah. Got it. So they started measuring it in the 50s. So every year we have a number that represents that year, how much was in the atmosphere. And we also found a trend since then that it increases by 7% each year. So when I get a sample of groundwater... And we check for sulfur hexafluoride. 
based on the amount that's in the water, we can backtrack and see which year it probably fell into that aquifer and has been there. That's so <laughs> fucking interesting. So what is the other one that you use to measure that nuclear one? The nuclear one is more drama. Tritium, she's just all drama. It has three different versions of hydrogen. One, two, and three. The third one, which is called tritium, is radioactive. And what that means is every 12.32 years, she just changes into helium-3. And the beauty about that is if I get a sample of water from the well and I test, I get the amount of tritium and helium, the ratio between it can tell us how many times helium was produced. And we know each event is 12 years. So it gives us an average, like an average apparent age of the groundwater. So, for example, in Trinidad and Tobago, Tobago, (laughs) normally in small islands are supposed to have very young water. It's supposed to be like less than 25 years. The oldest water I found was 60 plus years and 60 being the minimum amount. So it could be 100 or 1,000 years old. But all of the groundwater in the north is, is younger. It's 20 to 25 years. Okay, so you just said that the minimum was six years, but it could have been like even way older. Why is there like such a variance? Because each environmental tracer can only give us a certain age range. So the the cheapest method (laughs) is thus far is sulfexafluoride and uh, tritium. And then after that, for example, that sample, that particular well that has the 60-year-old plus water, Now we know it has old water. We take that and use another method of age dating to get an older age. Oh, so it's at least 60, but it could be more like, but you just need to like test for like that third sample. Okay, that makes sense. I'm obsessed. Yes. So then is that the whole like every 12 years when it goes from the tritium to the helium? Is that like the half-life thing when they talk about like, oh, like this has a half-life of whatever? Yes, helium-3 is the daughter isotope of hydrogen-3. Do we know or do we have any predictions for how long that's going to be in our water, like, period? Like, is it going to be, like, hundreds and hundreds of years that we're going to be able to measure that? Or is it almost gone? Well, this is the thing. We started testing using this method after nuclear testing, and there was a lot of tritium in the atmosphere after that testing in the 50s. Based on... The historical numbers I've seen thus far, we're getting very close to whatever the tritium was in the atmosphere pre-atomic bomb testing. So it's quite possible we might be able to figure out another way to use tritium since most of those tritiums that formed in the 50s has decayed away over time. But yeah, innovation, we can figure out how to do it. (laughs) So the beauty about what I do is if you need to figure out what's happening with your local groundwater supply, we could apply these exact same methods to figure out the water quality. We can figure out the age of the water, how far out of the catchment is it sourcing water from the residence time? How long does that water normally stay underground? And then from that data, we could do those models and come up with relatively decent pumping schedules based on what we have in storage and manage that sustainably. Okay, I'm obsessed with that. Okay, so then let's talk about Tobago. Mm -hmm. So I think we've learned what a fractured bedrock aquifer is. We missed a very big part. Welcome, class. (laughs) This is what a literal fractured bedrock aquifer is. So what people don't know is that rocks and minerals are very special. And when we have precipitation, it trickles into through that soil layer. There's a layer that's between the soil and the, the unfractured bedrock. Layer between the soil and the fractured bedrock that's called saprolites. So first you have soil, then you have saprolites, then you have fractured rock aquifer bedrock, and then you have unfractured bedrock at the bottom of it. Now, the beautiful thing about minerals and water when they get together in aquifers is that the water starts to equilibrate with the rock type and the mineral type and it starts to reflect the chemistry of that rock. Yes. So we can use those signals to track the mixing of different types of rock water as it flows through an aquifer system. 
So it can show you which waters are more probably contaminated or potentially can be contaminated with seawater. It, we can, it can tell you what direction flow is coming, especially from regions with high elevations. We can calculate the distance and time traveled for that water droplet that came on, the, on top of that mountain to the well far south. And these are all methods that already exist. What I try to do is use existing methods to, to find the answers to the current unknowns. So these are all methods that already exist and we're using it to solve these questions. Okay, so I just drew this little picture. Okay. So basically, you have like soil up here, and then you have this like little layer of like sacri- yeah, the, that S word. Then you have like the fractured aquifer bedrock, and then you have like the yeah. unfractured one. That's it. That's it. Is every place like have varying thicknesses? Like are some places like a mile thick of saprolites, and then like five miles of unfractured like aquifer bedrock? Like how thick are they? So what I can say for sure is. Based on your latitudinal position, your saprolite thickness changes. So here in New England, we have saprolites here, maybe three, four feet. But in the Caribbean, where you have all that rainfall, much more weathering, the saprolites could be maybe eight to 10 feet. So it's all dependent on that specific location and that specific rock type you're looking at, where it is. It's so different. Nothing is uniform underground. That is why there's so much work to be done. (laughs) And then is saprolites where you would find like diamonds and like sapphires and like emeralds and stuff, like from all the special minerals? Like, or like, is that like way deeper? Well, actually, you you should come visit me on campus sometime. I'll take you out to an outcrop where there are like garnets on the side of the street. <laughs> there are? Yes. <laughs> you can have minerals just showing up in a regular rock. Yeah. But are there minerals that live in the saprolite layer or no? Of course, because remember the saprolite is weathered rocks so, and all rocks have minerals in them. But if it is you're talking about gemstones, I don't know which saprolites would have them. <laughs> Okay, so this is like a different episode of Getting Curious, but that's how like curiosity works. It just takes you different places. But it's because I was just in Australia and I was learning a lot about opals because there's all these like opal museums because <gasps> like opals are like, maybe it's like black Australian opal. There's some kind of opal that's like only there. So that's where it came from. And I was learning that like it takes millions of years for an opal to form. So gemstones are probably like deeper unless it fell off someone's finger like, and then like got in the soil. I've heard of people going to locations that have gemstones and it's like they have land, they know they have really nice stones or quartz or whatever. If you know this area has gold or whatever mineral, you just go and pan and see if you can find something. <laughs> Where I'm from, like, it's like right next to like Hannibal, Missouri, which is like, you know, it's like Mark Twain, Huckleberry Finn and like the caves. And like you would go there on field trips when you were little and you would just like, you would get to do that in the fucking creek, like with the little net thing on the bottom and like sift Aww. through the shit for like, you guys, it's so fun. I need to do that. Okay. I want to do it too. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> So basically, going back to Tobago, the different ways that we're studying water from there, there's a lot of untapped potable water in these fractured aquifer bedrock. So in the research that you've done and and with like the environmental tracer analysis, we've learned that like Mm -hmm. some of the water is like a lot older than what we had originally, you had originally guessed. I'm like, Jonathan, you're not a fucking groundwater researcher, okay? Like you did not know about this until three minutes ago. So let's not say we, okay? You know what I'm saying? So, but you (laughs) have found... (laughs) But it's like you have found out that some of this is like a lot older than what we thought. So what are we finding so far of like the state of the research that you're conducting in the state of the study? So what have I found thus far? I found that there is a lot of interbasin flow happening on that tiny island. And what interbasin flow means is that these conduits, these fractures underground are cross-cutting topographical boundaries and allowing water to transfer from one region of the island to the other. And because that is happening, some of the subcatchments in the south of the island is producing a hundred to a thousand percent more groundwater than their calculated recharge. So those conduits are bringing a ton of water from the, the sort of mid-center range of mountainous range in the island to the south. 
imagine you, you think about this. You have precipitation falling on a certain spot in the island and we can calculate how much the recharge is going to be. So let's say the, the recharge is 50. You're pumping water and you're realizing you can get 5,000 gallons of water in, instead of what you're calculated 50. So where is all that water coming from? That's what I figured out. The water is coming from the fractures traveling long distance. The old age has just validated it because the longer the distance the water travels, the older the water is going to be because time is passing. Tobago has a lot of water in the south, very good quality water. With reference to the wells that are in, you know, hard rocks like granites and, and basalt, very good water quality. And then I also found that the wells that are located in the limestone and coral, they tend to have more seawater intrusion because remember I told you earlier, limestone can dissolve in water. So that ocean water is in contact with that limestone and that limestone is also in contact with the fresh water. So we have fresh water that's now being mixed with like seawater. Brackishy. Brackish. Yeah. We can't use those. So for that island, stay away from the limestone. Most of them are closed anyway, but it tells you like which wells are susceptible to seawater intrusion. Mm. And then finally, once we have an idea of the distant travel volume and so forth, we can literally create pumping schedules. You know, because remember, it's easy in Tobago because the government already have the wells and the distribution um, already done to the homes. So all we really need to know right now is how much in the aquifer, how can we use the water sustainably? How do we manage it in droughts? So for example, in a drought where the wells that have very young water, it means that it's not staying there very long, it's being pumped out much uh, faster. But what about tapping into those wells that are, you know, connected to that old water that's traveling all those years? So it might give you an idea which wells to tap into during severe droughts if you have to and so forth. Yeah, so it's like it really helps you with a sustainability plan. That's correct. And so that's why this research is so important because it's like, it's not like you can just do that cross section of the ground like at any old time be like oh yep there's a water that's how much there is like you need these projections and calculations to figure out how old the water is to figure out like how long has it been there so you can deduce like from all the different times that it rains you're like okay so with this much rain and we can say that this water has been here for like 10 years or 8 years or 2 years or 25 years or however mm-hmm. you can start to figure out like how much untapped water is there the local Water management companies are doing a good job. But I feel as if once I complete this study, they would have everything they need with reference to knowing how much is in storage. If it is you get a certain amount of rainfall, how much do we estimate will be in storage? And we can calculate, you know, based on how much water each person on the island needs. We'll see if, if the storage amount is sufficient. And it actually gives them even insight into planning the future. So, for example, desalination. If it is population growth, we know we can probably put in a plant that provides the extra water we need. But I also feel as if we have so much space for innovation. And I do feel as if some of that water that we are losing to the ocean, we could still use some of it. So even probably looking into technology, into tapping into those spots in the ocean where fresh water is coming out of these conduits, maybe getting water from those conduits, it might even be cheaper with reference to desalination costs because it's less salty. I love innovation. I feel as if to innovate, we have to have the foundation and we have the foundation, we have the science. We just need innovative ideas and funding to get them done. And we can be okay. I'm worried about the future, but I think if we prepare, we'll be fine. So, I mean, this is like really important to understand this because I'm sure that Tobago isn't the only place that has untapped like potable groundwater. And there's so many places that are struggling with drought. This is like really important science that could probably be replicated other places. Yeah, so my plan is to replicate this in Trinidad now because we have a huge fracture rock aquifer and move my way up 
the islands because first things first, who would have thought tiny islands would have old waters? They always said, no, we can't. We do. Ah. <laughs> All because of fractured rocks. They are amazing. <laughs> ah. okay, I'm obsessed. Okay, wait, I have another question that's kind of, it's not spelled out so far, but I, I just, I'm, I always go to doomsday. I think it's because of like, life or something uh-huh. so you know how like water erodes rocks yeah. right so if there's like fractured underground aquifers like is that ever gonna make like places that have them a lot like is that ever just gonna collapse and we're like gonna sink or something oh no 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 think about your, your granite countertop it's solid you always want your house to be a house on a, on a solid type of rock. You don't want limestone. You don't want gypsum. Um, you don't want sand. But like Tobago, like that's mostly made of hard old old rock. Solid. Okay, perfect. It's like a millions and millions of year thing. Like so, it's fine. We're fine. Like New York's fine. Tobago's fine. Mm-hmm. Like we're all fine. Ah, uh, we are fine until unless sea level rises. Oh, geez. But as far as like collapsing into fractured oh, no, we aquifer good, we bedrock, good. we're fine for that. We're fine. We're fine. So we're not going to like have like a huge sinkhole because that's where my brain was going. As I was like, is this underground water going to like erode our base? Rocks like granite and basalt. These are hard rocks. It's, they don't dissolve in water. Ah, okay. Okay. I'm obsessed. Okay. 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 okay so, okay. Let me turn it Okay. Okay. Okay, and then obviously, like, if it turns out that the groundwater is an untapped source of potable water, which it does seem like that's kind of happened in Tobago already, you're like, okay, we're having this, like, interbasin water, like, it's old, like, we just need to figure out, like, how to harvest it and, like, how to get to it. The impacts are, like, better planning, better urban planning, like, less um, vulnerability to drought, like, better crops, better, like, all the things that water would bring, which is just, like, better health, better public stuff, like, just better everything, right? Yes, yes. So were you just like minding your own business and you were just like a little baby girl and you were like in Tobago and you were just like, I love rocks. Because now obviously you're a hydrogeologist, but like you said earlier that you like got into geology first. Like, when did you like become obsessed with geology? You know, I was thinking about this the other day and I realized my sister told me I always sat on the front step chewing rocks. <laughs> and she told me she asked why and, and I wanted to taste them. So I have very clear memories of me being six, just eating rocks. I can remember looking at like mica and shit. I was like, ooh, shiny. Let me see what you taste like. So <laughs> it started there. Okay. I also like, <laughs> I was like always obsessed with collect, like figure skating gymnastics, but then also like collecting stuff. Like I collected rocks, stamps. Like I liked to collect stuff when I was little. Yeah. And like, I really feel you on that. Like I caught, I a lot of times wanted to lick the rocks, not like eat it, but lick it. <laughs> and I think it's because this one time I licked one that was, it was like salt. Like it tasted like salt. It was like a salt rock or something. Yeah, highlight, yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking you're not alone. <laughs> like it's like not weird. Like I think a lot of us want to eat rocks when we're little, but it did start for you when you were young. Yeah, it's and my dad and I, we would always be outside in the garden. I was his mini me. I just have, have a love for growing food and rocks and plants from since I could walk I think my memories is just me following him around and I have one more other question for you just because I just think your story is like really cool you said that in college you were majoring in economics yes and so like there's a lot there for like following your passion I think like I had that at it like that age where like I was in school for like political science, but really I wanted to be a hairdresser and I need to be interested in what I'm learning about or I just don't want to do it. But it takes a leap of faith to like do something that's like more passion driven where your parents like, oh, maybe stick with economics or what did that take for you to personally like switch and like, what was that like? Can I tell you something? From the moment I was 16, my father told me to become a teacher. I had a mouth on me. I was like, no. I don't want to deal with anybody's kids. <laughs> and he, every year since that, he was like, you should teach. Because I used to teach my little brother every single day. And he's like, you should teach. And you get summers off. But I never really thought about teaching until I came to the U.S. And I realized, oh, this could actually be a job. Oh, people become professors. I didn't even know what a PhD was until three years living in America. I had a mentor, Dr. Peruji. One day... I think she knew I wasn't happy with my major. And one day she asked me, 
why are you studying economics, Marsha? And I was like, Dr. P, I want to make money. <laughs> I want to take my family out of poverty. I need to make money. And then she looked at me. She's like, no. She's like, the only way to make money is to follow your passion. What is your passion? And that was my first semester at Mount Holyoke. That conversation stuck with me. And I literally switched my major to geology and minored in economics. The faculty and staff at Mount Holyoke Geology Geography Department was so supportive. It always felt like home and it made learning about, you know, all of these intense topics so much easier because I really loved learning about it. Yeah. And now you're a literal PhD fucking literal doctor teaching there. Like, full circle realness. I love that part of the story. I have Freaky Friday moments where I would be walking. Like, a couple of days ago, I was walking on campus. It was raining. I had my raincoat on. I had, like, a deja vu, but it couldn't be because maybe it was. I was like, oh, I remember walking here, and I had bought that jacket my first day at Mount Holyoke. So I still have my exact same rain jacket. And I was like, oh, my God. I'm back home with my jacket. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cute. And I see them screaming and running and having a good time. I'm like, oh my gosh, I miss being able to have enough energy to scream and run at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) I know the other day I was just like doing something that wasn't that hard. And I was like, oh, I was at the airport. And I remember how my grandma would like sit down and like take a really deep breath, like at the airport or whatever, just because it was like... That was a lot. And like, I find myself doing that now. And I'm like, oh my God, I turned into my grandma. Okay, so you have personal ties to Tobago. Now you're working to prevent water shortages there. So like, has your relationship to the island changed? Or like, how does that feel as you've like learned more about it? I spent a lot of time in Tobago and in the forest with my friends. Like we were always doing something, you know, it has a beautiful um, natural Forest with, with birds and very exotic creatures, coral reefs. So from a very young age, I was always like obsessed with Tobago, so much nature and life. And I'm really into nature. But then when I started to do the geology and hydrogeology of the island, it just showed me how much more magical that place is. It's home. It's, it's exotic. It's beautiful. The people are so kind and warm. I feel very blessed to be able to give back to my island. I also feel extremely blessed that, you know, I grew up in a very poor area in Trinidad, Lamental, and I'm so excited for other young people to see it doesn't matter if you come from the hood, you know, your humble beginnings are good and um, they make you into who you are. So I, I will always be uh, Trini to the bone. <laughs> oh, man. You're, I mean, I love you so much. So it really is so cool that you like did your studies at Mount Holyoke. From when you were a student there to now that you're a teacher, do you feel like there's more awareness and more urgency on climate change and environmentalism? Does it just feel like Jennifer Lawrence and Don't Look Up like the whole time? Like people were panicking then and people are still panicking now and we're like not moving quickly enough? Because I know you'd mentioned earlier, like, we need to move faster. What's it like, like, being, you know, on the, on the kind of the front academic lines? The spirit of Mount Holyoke is the same, same energy. But in the 10 years that I haven't been here, I've noticed something. I've noticed that this new generation of college students, they are fierce. And they are determined to fix problems. They are brilliant. And this is the first time in maybe 10, 15 years, I feel hopeful for the future. Mm. And I feel if it is we continue to support and help the youth, earth and everything in it has a chance to be happy, loved and prosperous. Mm. I really, really believe we have to focus on our young people right now. And that's my plan. What values are you hoping to, like, kind of instill in them? Mm. In general or just science-wise? Both. Okay. So, value number one, be your authentic self. She might be a little extra. It's okay. Just enough, I think. Just be yourself. And when you're yourself... 
your village will come. Your friends, the people that need to be in your life, they will show up. Hold on to that village of people throughout your journey. Secondly, life is short. Nothing is promised to us. Go for your dreams. Dream big and go for it. There's no reason you shouldn't do it. Actually, the more people told me I can't do this, so I can't do that. I did it just for spite. (laughs) (laughs) People can underestimate you, but don't underestimate yourself. Go for it. I want them to also enjoy being young. Because your youth goes so quickly. I feel as if if you don't experience the things you want to do in your youth, you always wonder what would have happened if you did that. So I want them to experience life and, and travel, meet new people, try new things. I also want them to be gentle on themselves. We have had a really rough three years and, um, you know, the pandemic and everything else that's been happening in the world is, is really, really stressful. And I want my students to know that I am aware of that and we need to be soft with each other while we heal from this. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. It's beautiful. One of the aspects of your story that I just think is so beautiful and really amazing was that you pursued your passion for science. So what advice would you have for other people who want to pursue the sciences? First things first. Make sure you choose a a topic that you will always have your passion for. If everything else is going wrong in your life, you have to be excited to do your research. I think that's what kept me going. Secondly, have a mentor for every aspect of your life. You're not going to get a full mentor in one person. Have your mentor for, you know, your life goals, have a mentor for speaking, training, about your research, multiple mentors about writing. I have about six or seven different mentors. (laughs) And thirdly, don't be afraid or ashamed to ask people to be your mentor. A lot of students are functioning in fear. Do not function in fear. The worst you can get is a no. And guess what? No's are not bad. You're going to get a yes someday from the right person. Right. One of my mentors tells me that because I like really struggled with rejection and it would cause me to have like really kind of intense, like reactive, self-destructive behavior. Yes. And once she taught me that like no's are actually just like feedback. It's just like research. Like if you view your whole life as like research, no is just like feedback. It's not a reflection on you or like who you are. It's just research. And then you know how to make better choices like based off of the feedback or based off of your research. But you don't have to like take that on as like a reflection of like who you are as a person, which like helped me a lot. Yes. I love. And, and then finally, I want all, even you, Jonathan, always take a moment to sit in nature. That's where you get most of your answers. Your gut speaks the best when you're in nature. Ah, as I sit inside of a closet in Manhattan. So I'm obsessed with you. I feel like we learned so much. How can listeners learn more about groundwater near where they live? Like if we are just like fully bitten by our inner Aaron Brockovich, like groundwater bug or like Dr. Marsha groundwater bug, Mm -hmm. rather, how can people learn more? Okay, so you can literally just go to Google and type in where does my so-and-so town receive its potable drinking water? And normally you have three or four links telling you where you're from your own region, where it's from, what's happening. If you want to know something in particular, you want to get your water sample and analyzed and stuff. Most universities or colleges may have people doing water science and you can send them a sample and so forth. Interest. And then what about if like advocating for more sustainable water use speaks to you or like you want to know more about that? Like how can people advocate for more sustainable water use? Well, there are already some pretty powerful organizations that are currently advocating for the protection of water rights and sustainability. One of them is called the Waterkeeper Alliance Group. Another one is called uh, Standing Rock Water Protectors Profile, Honor the Earth. There's a whole bunch of organizations protecting water rights and, and learning about the water in their regions. 
Now, if like me, you've just like completely fallen in love with you over the last like hour and change, <laughs> how can we follow you and your work? Uh, like, where are you most active and what's next for you? Like, where can we keep up? So I'm active on Twitter. Uh, Hi, Georgio Trini. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's my handle. Yeah. So I normally post just really cool information about water or science. And then I recently started something, which I, <laughs> okay. So I need to tell you about my class, Jonathan. Tell me. I got the opportunity to create my new, own new classes. My, one of my classes, I decided to integrate art, an art component. So my students each have to do two pieces of art and the art is going to reflect what's happening with our um, climate atmosphere. I wanted them to make it by hand, paint, drawing, poetry, crafting. And um, I decided to do it too. I'm really uh, big on diversity and inclusion. And I have this hope that I can have students try fieldwork on campus, you know, in a safe environment, just so they know if they like it or not. So I'm really excited about going into these new forms of teaching science where we can have uh, uh, science expressed in so many different ways. I love that. If you could share some of that artwork on Twitter, I think people would really love to see that. So get on the Twitter. I also feel like there must be like a really cool like hydrogeology and geology community on TikTok because there's a, commu a community for everything on TikTok. I feel like I want to see you like making video content on there. You're just like so charismatic and I'm charming <laughs> and I just like love watching you you're just you really are just like really engaging like I have just been so like this whole time I learned so much so I just would love to see more of you maybe we're going to take a screenshot from this episode of getting curious and then you're going to simultaneously get like awarded a modeling contract because the academia but like the modeling prowess at the same time I mean you're just giving me like angle 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 like Honey. Jonathan, I can't help it. In my sisters, they made me extra. Oh my God. Look at these gloves. Yes. She's giving us glam <laughs> academic. I love this girl so much I can't even see it. But the gloves are really the glove necklace, headphones, hair combo, glasses, just all of it. The accessory game is just really like came to absolutely fucking slay. It's like coming for the jugular today. We're so grateful for you coming on Getting Curious. I learned so much. Thank you so much for your Thank time. Thank you for having me. You're and the please, best. Please come and visit me. We will. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Venice. Our guest this week was Marsha Allen. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, honey, please get on that Facebook. I mean, the meta, honey. The Instagram, the TikTok, the YouTube. Let the folks know what you're listening to, what you're loving, and how they can listen. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousJBN. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. 